we sat down and we said, let's just remind ourselves why we're doing it. We, we always set out to do something different, to create a different kind of business and sort of to prove that, you know, business could be used as a force for good. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful Leaders podcast. And today I have a very special guest as always. We have James Perry. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Lovely to see you on screen after uh, your, our great Q&A. Well, I say our great Q&A. You're the one who did the great answers at the wonderful summit. So thank you for being part of the summit. And it's great to talk to you again. It's good to be here. So James, as a kind of kickoff question, tell us what a day in the life of James Perry looks like. <laughs> well, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a day in the life of James Perry. I, I suppose I'm probably like many people these days, um, sort of juggling a few things and trying to make sense of it. So I don't have a sort of an office that I have to be at by nine o'clock that I leave at five o'clock. Um, but uh, typically I do quite a lot in the mornings with the kids and getting the kids out of the house. And then sort of my time is mine, um, particularly in the uh, school term time. Um, and then really it's split between, you know, some time in London uh, with meetings, uh, some time in the business in Cook, some time sort of out and about meeting people or doing shop visits or whatever. And some uh, sort of fair amount of time working from home uh, on the dreaded Zoom, um, but I'm non-executive, so I don't have a like formal uh, management role in Cook. I'm part of the governance, uh, so I run the board rather than run the business. So you mentioned Cook Foods a couple of times there, obviously, or Cook a couple of times, where you're non-exec on the board at the moment, a co-chair of the board, but you're co-founder of Cook, so. As much as it sounds nice now, you've got a board role, haven't got a daily role. Take us back to the beginning. Take us back to, you know, what's the brief history? I mean, how did Cook, what was the sort of, you know, the genesis of it? And how did you go? This is a big question, but how did you go from that, that startup idea, that kind of, we want to make a difference to, to the incredible growth and employing thousands of people and just, yeah, what is it, has that journey looked? Well, my brother started Cook in 1997 and I was working at Cadbury Limited in Bourneville. So I did a graduate training scheme after university and my brother didn't go to university and he was working for my mum and dad. And he had this idea to create a retail business uh, based on home cooking. So off he went and started it in 97. And um, I actually took over my mum and dad's business, which was making cakes. And my brother was bringing, was buying cakes from them. And uh, in uh, about 1999, I left Cadbury's and took over their business and uh, I was buying cakes from him uh, and essentially asked him uh, when he was going to pay for the cakes. Um, and he said next month. And then he said next month again, the following month. Uh, and then I asked to look at his accounts. And essentially, we decided that it would be in the interest of everybody if we sort of bought those two businesses together. So I went into business with him. He'd actually been going for about two years at that point. Um, and then we decided that we would bring those two businesses together and grow them. Uh, grow and grow the business together so that's what we did um, and we involved my sister as well and actually now my brother and my sister run the company and I co-chair it so uh, that was the, the original story but what we ended up doing was um, having a business cook which had so much potential but needed quite a lot of capital and Ed had started it with a £25,000 loan from NatWest and a sort of rubber band and a fiver and a packet of crisps you know and <laughs> And I think he says himself, if he'd known how challenging it would be, he would never have started. I mean, it was crazy, really. None of, it, none of us knew what we were doing, really. But we had a lot of passion and a lot of belief and a, 
and a and a sort of that kind of never say die attitude that young people have. We thought we were invincible, so off we went on this kind of crazy journey. But yeah, it uh, it it then took us on a roller coaster ride for a few years. That's amazing. And you must—I mean, were you the first people in the market to do you know foods in the way that you did? I think so. Probably yes. I mean. Back then, there was a sort of um, emergent farm farm shop and independent retail sector. Right. And there had been people who'd sort of cooked, effectively cooked in their kitchens, frozen it and sold it to the local farm shop. So there wasn't anyone doing it in a, what I would call a systematic way. Yeah. And so we were the first people to really try to do that. And it's a difficult business model because you need to spend a long time losing money basically you've got to, to, to get you've got to have a certain level of scale before you can make money and you go through this right. quite long uh, valley of despond and most and that really chews most people up so a few people set out into that journey but sort of get chewed up on the way we were just very fortunate that we had each other we had a sort of a very profound determination but we also had a leg up because we were able to grow the business that i had been running the cake manufacturing business and we, we, we saw that that had potential to effectively grow it and sell it. So we sold it in 2003, about three or four years after I joined with Ed. And essentially, we created our own venture capital to carry on growing the company. Amazing. Now, one of the keys to success for Cook has got to be wrapped up in the culture. And the reason I say that is because uh, I was reading that, you know, Cook has spent 10 years in the top 100 Sunday Times best companies to work for. Now, just to make it one year, I mean, that's like, that's, you know, the, you know you, you're hitting the top of the mountain there. But for 10 years, I mean, it's a phenomenal achievement. So how have you developed and, and the team? So when I say you, I'm, refer, I'm referring to the family, I suppose, and everyone else that's in the leadership team. But how has that culture developed over the years? And how does, how does that kind of reflect your values? So back in about, well, we had a near-death experience in 20, 2007, um, 2008 with the global financial crisis. We had been growing the business. We needed capital to build kitchens, to open shops. We created a certain amount of venture capital by selling the cake company, but then we found ourselves really very over-leveraged going into that financial crisis. We borrowed a ridiculous amount of money from HBOS, who then went bust. Uh, we then had a massive cash hole and were fighting for our lives for about two years. And when we came out of that in 2010, 2011, we started getting a bit more stable. We kind of revisited why we were doing it. Ed, Ed myself and Rosie sort of sat down and said, like we'd, been, we'd sort of thrown everything overboard that wasn't nailed down in order to survive. The only thing we hadn't ever compromised was the actual food itself. We weren't going to compromise the quality. But everything else, we'd, we'd sort of had the horrible trauma of sort of dismantling parts of the business we'd grown, making redundancies all of those sorts of things. And we sat down and we said, let's just remind ourselves why we're doing it. We, we always set out to do something different, to create a different kind of business and sort of to prove that, you know, business could be used as a force for good. And as part of that conversation, obviously, the kind of employer we wanted to be came into it. What was our approach to our people? And my sister Rosie actually had the inspiration and said, look, we just need, we need something to go after. We need a, we need, we need a sort of a program to join, some external validation, some 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 frameworks and some ways of thinking that would, will help us. And it was her who said, let's go after the Sunday Times best companies because she felt it was just a really good system. And so that's what we did. So it was a very kind of um, intentional and strategic effort to get into the 
Sunday Times best employers. And so that's what we went after. And it took us probably three years of really hard work before we got into the top 100. And then we sort of kept on climbing. Um, and we ended up as, we're very proud that we ended up as the top food and drink company to work. Now, I know as part of that journey, and I suppose as part of the kind of the way that you operate the business, there's a lot of social kind of programs run within the organization in terms of employment and culture. Will you unpack a couple of those for us? Well, I mean, the process started with a deep dive into what we wanted our values to be. And again, the way that Rosie went about it wasn't to kind of decide what they were, put them on a poster in the foyer. It was much more to have a big conversation with the whole company saying, you know, what are our values and what and what do we want them to be? And so it was, a, it was a really big conversation, which involved hundreds of people. And we ended up with like 30, which obviously is unworkable. And that was distilled down to five. Um, and that became the sort of platform from which we were working. And, um, and so we got these five values, which we really think about, celebrate. People understand what they are and they, um, and they give each other nominations for kind of when, when they find colleagues uh, living by those values. So, so we started with values, but I suppose even deeper than that, you know, right at the beginning, we'd always felt that there was something about modern business that had reduced people to a kind of unit of production, you know, like an input cost. So when people looked at their P&L, they thought, oh, you know, we need to reduce costs. We need to reduce our uh, wage bill. And we always thought of people slightly differently. We thought, we thought of them as people who had value in their own right. We think people are incredible. And we wanted Cook as an employer to be a platform for them to progress and to take a sort of holistic interest in their well-being beyond just their work life. So that meant that when we were, for example, doing training, we weren't just thinking about the training people so that they could be more economically valuable to the company. We were thinking about how training could actually enrich them as people and their families and their lives more broadly. So, so that sort of so it started with the values, and then it sort of grew into this um, idea. We we introduced something called the Dream Academy, which is like a coaching program for people who work for us. And what we learned through that was that everybody has dreams, and most people have barriers which are stopping them from achieving their dreams. And so this coaching program helped them identify what those barriers were and overcome them, and then. We found that some people's dream wasn't to work for Cook. <laughs> they like what you know. For example, somebody wanted to be a dentist, or somebody wanted to be a hairdresser, or whatever it might be. And we ended up supporting them to go off and fulfil their dreams. And when people saw that in the company, it really landed with them that we meant it. Actually, this wasn't just about making Cook stronger. This was actually about making them stronger. And that had a. I mean, we sort of did it because we believed it, but it definitely had a, a commercial benefit because people then really started to believe in, in the company. And it meant that when they showed up to work, they had a sort of level of commitment that probably went beyond the transaction of, I sell you my time, you pay me at the end of the week kind of thing. One of the things that I was sort of researching was the Raw Talent Programme. And that just seems like an incredible kind of initiative that kind of brings into a framework around everything we're discussing. Right. So, so when you, so you, you sort of start with that original idea of people's value, you then move into the values conversation and out of that then comes, well, how are we going to make these values real and how can we use this business to further those values? So, and one of the values is be part of the family. And we sort of felt that, you know, everybody, you know, lots of people have people they know or family members who have made bad decisions in their lives and ended up in a bad place. And we we could see that Often what those people really need is a community to be part of and a job. 
And if a workplace can become a kind of safe place for them to kind of, you know, a, a safe foundation for them in their lives, which gives them a sort of a core purpose, then that would be a valuable thing we could offer. So it sort of started informally. It actually started because we were giving away some of our, and again, another thing that came out of our values was one of our values is care. And um, we found that we were having ingredients that weren't fully used. So we batch cook. So sometimes if you cook a batch, for some reason, you have a little bit of chicken left over or you have a little bit of something left over at the end. And we had been throwing it away, which obviously is a terrible thing to do. And some of our chefs thought, well, we've got these ingredients. And they knew of a homelessness shelter uh, down the road. They said, well, they need food. So why don't we take the ingredients and cook it at the homelessness shelter? So that's what, what, what started to happen. And out of that came the conversation with the homelessness shelter that said, actually, what these people need is a job to get them back on their feet. And so we thought, well, we can provide those. So we, it was quite informal. And we started most, a lot of these people were recovering addicts or people with mental health challenges. We started employing them um, very informally. And it's, it's a challenging thing to do. And over time, we sort of learned a few lessons and got a bit better at it. Um, and over time, that then developed into a much more formal program, which we call Raw Talent, where we work a lot with local prisons. We take people on day release for trials. And we've now started going inside the prisons and training people. And it's been really successful, but it, it's required the cultural acceptance of the people who work with them. And it can be very difficult. You know, it's not easy. And, you know, sometimes you can put a lot of work into supporting someone and then they can sort of just vanish or, and it can be quite challenging sometimes. But overall, it's been wonderful. And one example is, you know, we had some we, we had a sort of covenant with our teams which said we wouldn't take anybody with a murder conviction or a serious sexual offence uh, for their own protection or for their own feeling of safety at work. And, we, and the prison really wanted to give us someone with a murder conviction. And we said, look, we've got this agreement with our teams. And they said, no, but this person, you know, they really, this was a long time ago. They're, they're really different now. They just needed someone to give them a break. So we went and asked the team that they'd be working with whether they'd be willing to think about it. And they, they had a team meeting and they decided, yep, they'd give this person a trial. And that person then joined us and has been with us for a long time now. And so, yeah, a lot of it's about consent, you know, and a lot of it's about working together and recognizing that it is difficult and that people are having to give up some of their own convenience to make it happen. But when it does work, it becomes very rewarding. And over time, it becomes something you get better at. It's like a muscle. You, you, you sort of exercise it and it gets stronger. What an incredible story. No, thanks for sharing that, James. Something you said earlier when you you came together, you know, with the family, with your brother and your sister, and you, you said you had this fundamental belief that business could be a force for good. So just helicoptering out a little bit, how do you see the role of business as a force for good in general? I mean, incredible what you what you guys have implemented with Cook, but sort of taking it as a helicopter view. Do you see, should business be a force for good in general? Should there be frameworks and should there be um, goals that we're looking to achieve as business people, whether we have a faith or not? Well, so when we started, we didn't really understand about much about capitalism. You know, we were just sort of young people starting a business. But the longer we went through it and sort of talked to venture capital people and banks and so on, we started learning about it. And when we had when we'd started whilst we didn't understand much about capitalism we did understand that we were quite uncomfortable with sort of some of business behavior you know even now you know you you'll ring up your the call center and you don't get the sense that the company's very interested in you you sort of you feel like you're prey you know and they're sort of the predator and 
it's this sort of nasty feeling of, of sort of very antagonistic. And we didn't really think that was right. And we didn't really understand where it came from. So we spent quite a lot of time, or I particularly spent quite a lot of time thinking about that and exploring it. And what I learned was that, you know, back in the 1970s and 1980s, this idea had, had sort of taken over, which was that the purpose of business was to maximize profits for shareholders, because that's what would be good for society. You know, businesses create wealth. As wealth is created, it trickles down. Everybody benefits. So the highest purpose of business is just to go after the money. And it just, it didn't sit very well with me. And what I've learned now, and, and having been doing this for a long time, is that I strongly believe that that's the wrong idea. I think that if you ask business to do that, business is a brilliant mechanism to sort of do anything you ask it to do. And if you ask it to do that, it does it. But unfortunately, what it does in the pursuit of profit is it consumes you know, natural resources, it, it consumes people, it consumes communities, it delivers them stuff that probably it shouldn't. You know, like at the moment, there's a big scandal around uh, ultra-processed food and driving obesity and health crises and those sorts of things. So business business does what it does to make money. And actually, if you don't make it, if you don't give it a broader set of responsibilities, then it's going to end badly. So we started thinking what you need to do is internalize. You need to make business responsible for those other consequences. So we started thinking about the impact we're having on people and planet as a core responsibility of the business, which is a different way of thinking about business. And so either business is like a machine that just goes out and extracts everything it can and brings it back to shareholders, or it's something that goes out with an intent to create value for everybody. And we definitely bought into that. So that's kind of the route we've been, we've been pursuing. Within all of that, within that kind of business framework and that vision and, and, and everything you've been describing around culture and, uh, and all of the kind of um, programs that you've run, what role does your faith play in your business life? Well, I believe that people have faith or can have faith if they choose to. You know, I have a faith. I'm following Jesus. I'm not really a believer that organizations can have a faith. You know, I don't really think that there's such a thing as a Christian business. I think there are Christians in business. And so, you know, Cook isn't a Christian business. Um, there are lots of Christians who work in Cook because they see what we're doing and they want to, uh, they want to align with it and they want to bring their talent and, and make it happen. But equally, there's lots of non-Christians in Cook. And, you know, in some ways as, as a Christian, I think that hopefully that there's a good witness going on and people are thinking... You know, why are you doing this? Why do you bother? And we can then explain that. I can then explain that through the through the lens of my faith. But it's not something that we particularly talk about in the business. It's something that we sort of leave as as pretty private for people. But for me personally, you know, the the great joy and fulfillment I get out of being associated with Cook is that it is, in I believe, turn it, showing up in the world as something that's, you know, something that would. I mean, it's definitely not perfect and we still have a lot of work to do um, and we still got a lot of things we're going after to be better. But that that journey, that path we're walking is a path that would please the person that I follow. Along that journey, obviously, you know, you, you've mentioned something you know, and we've talked about the culture piece and some of the programs and some of those kind of real mountaintop moments. But what have been some of the valley moments along the way that a business and a, and a leader of your of your ilk that's been going that long is you know you've 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 ridden the highs and lows. But what have been some of those moments where you've been in that valley and thought, can I really do this? And what's it taught you? Well, we're fortunate because we weren't an overnight success. You know, I think it's really difficult for people who sort of show up and suddenly it's just 
ridiculously successful. I think, right? Uh, yeah, who knows what that would have done to us? And I'm grateful it didn't happen to us. It actually, it was a, a very, very long journey with some real, re- some really difficult times. For probably about ten years, we were very close to going out of business because we didn't have venture capital. We didn't, we couldn't take the venture capital because at the time, certainly the venture capital was coming from the idea that the purpose of business is to maximize profit. So if we'd taken their money, then we'd have had to be doing that and we didn't we didn't want to. So that sort of shut off a big opportunity for us to have the capital we needed to grow. So, you know, that meant that in the early days, it was a probably for 10 years, it was a pretty stressful dogfight with our with our bank balance. And you know, there were times when on sort of Thursday, Friday evening, I'd be going home, not quite knowing how we were going to pay the payroll on Monday. And we're talking about hundreds of people and therefore many hundreds of people who depend on that payroll. And that was a very uncomfortable situation. And, you know, we we sort of made a judgment that we could come through it. It got pretty hairy at times. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember in in 2008, 2007, 2008, with the financial crisis, we'd just taken on a new person to be our manufacturing operations director. And the first thing he did, we said, welcome to your new job. He'd left a big a big job at a, a, a bigger company. And we said, welcome to Cook. One of your first jobs is going to be showing the bailiff around our kitchen because we can't pay the rent and he needs, and the landlord wants a bailiff to go around to assess the value of the and he was like, and I wow. remember having this conversation with him and, and him and saying, look, I, I can understand right now that you might be wondering whether you've made the right career choice. <laughs> he was a young guy and an ambitious guy. And actually, uh, we got through that and he um, he stayed with us. And in fact, he only recently left us to go and run a European European managing director or something. So it was a good ride for him. But he had to really kind of knuckle down and show some faith in us. And and so those valley moments, I mean, it you know, it was horrendous. And, you know, my, my wife lived in a house with young children and she didn't know from one day to the next whether the bank would be evicting us from our house. You know, it was hairy. And, but in some ways, out of those valley moments comes incredible richness. You know, the guy who, who, who showed around the bailiffs and showed faith with us went on a brilliant journey with us for, for 15 years. My wife actually never cared about money and she said, it doesn't matter. Will the children be all right? <laughs> But actually, you know, we all learned what we care about during those moments and we kind of got to know each other a bit better and we came through it. I mean, it's easy to say, right, because we came through those valleys. It could, we could e- equally easily have been blown over and people do get blown over. And, you know, one of the key things that I think about is that could have been us. You know, it, it's not, you know, success and failure are both imposters and they're to be greeted with the same disdain. <laughs> you know, that that quote. I mean, you must have learned an incredible amount about yourself along that journey as well. So as you mentioned earlier, you were young and, you know, a sense of we can take on the world. And, you know, you're sitting here a few years later, you know, with a lot of experience and, and, and the wisdom that comes with that. But how has your own leadership developed over that time? And kind of what role do you think leadership played in that whole journey? Well, in the beginning, we were what I might call old fashioned white male leaders, you know, insofar as myself and my brother and my sister would sort of sit in the pub and make decisions. And then we'd take them to the business and say, right, we're going to do this. And we weren't involving people. And there was an element to which at the beginning, you need to sort of do a bit of that. You know, you need to make some pretty bold strokes. You need to, you need to make some quite big decisions. And if you try and make them with a immature group of, you know, we weren't mature at the time. We didn't, we didn't really know what we were doing, might not have ended well. 
So there's a sort of time and a place for it. But over time, what I've realized is actually there's a lot more I don't know than what I do know. And together we're strong. Alone, we're pretty weak and we're going to make bad decisions. So I suppose the, the main thing that I've learned is my own limitations and the brilliance of others. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about or trying to involve people who see that similarly to us and who have a similar sort of commitment. So we were never that worried about, if you like, functional expertise in the early days. We were hiring much more on character and on alignment. So do we believe in this person and are we aligned much more than do they have the right experience? So, you know, we hired somebody to run our, our brand and communications and strategy who had no experience of any of that stuff. They'd actually been a journalist. And Whoa. Uh, but but we had that alignment and we, we believed in the character and the talent. And and what then happened was we were able to to figure stuff out together, which I think has led to some extent to us being quite different because we haven't just hired the comms guy who then does the comms thing. And that's led to this opportunity to do things a bit differently. So my core reflection is around interdependence instead of individualism. You know, the age of the white hero leader who sort of leads from the front and tells everybody what's going to happen is very outdated and we go far together. I love what you said about employing and character and alignment. Now that's that's quite a hard thing to do because you, you're dealing with often nuances, people's personalities, their own values, their own core beliefs, not just the CV and the, and the LinkedIn profile, right? You're kind of dealing with a, a different set of criteria, metrics around that. How have you how have you found kind of um, assessing people's character and alignment, particularly at interview stage? I'm not asking for details, but just you know, you mentioned the the, the guy that oversaw your you know, your brand and your comms and strategy. How did you find alignment with him, or how did you know we had alignment with you? Well, our recruitment again, for particularly for senior roles, has been quite unconventional in that we will typically get to know people. So rather than say we have a vacancy, we we are now going to advertise or go to a search firm and get a shortlist and pick someone. It's much more of a relational approach than that. So, you know, for example, we've got a vacancy actually in a pretty senior role at Cook and we've had it for nearly a year. And I don't see any prospect of us filling it because we're still searching for that person. And, you know, and, and a lot of it's done through networking. You know, we might put out a shout on LinkedIn and see what comes back, but it's much more of an informal relational approach. Now, sometimes obviously you have an operational role which has to be filled. So we do that too. And yeah, I mean, we take a lot of time with people. We sort of, and it's pretty informal, you know, the idea of a job interview again for, for more functional roles. And of course, you, you know, there's a lot of stuff, you know, if we're hiring a technical manager, we need them to have the right qualifications and the right expertise in technology, whatever the relevant field is. But with sort of more senior strategic roles, it's much more around getting to know people. We wouldn't do a sort of job interview. We just do lots meet meet them a lot of times in different circumstances, go for walks, get, have a meal, you know. So it's it's more like a dating process yep. than a sort of traditional search process. That's life experience and wisdom right there when your own values come into life. What are some of those values and leadership keys that you hold on to personally that you've got in your toolkit that you know whenever you're meeting someone formally or informally what are some of those keys that you've got in there in your toolkit because i don't perform a you know management role it is slightly different you know i'm not particularly good at managing people 
and I know that. So one of my leadership keys is knowing my limitations. And, um, and one of those is trying to avoid managing people. What I find the key is, it is around people. So it's about finding people who are really talented, who have a very core set of strong core set of values, which are aligned with what we're trying to do with the, what the organization's trying to do and who are themselves strong independent leaders who don't need their hand holding. So that's the level I, I work in. You know, so I'm hiring, if I'm hiring, I'm hiring very senior people. And, and the way that I lead them is to be their friend, to be their supporter. So again, I've been on many boards where there's a slightly toxic vibe where, you know, the management show up and the non-execs show up and the management sort of have to sing for their dinner and the non-execs sit there kind of sucking their breath through their teeth. And it, it, it sort of feels like them and us, you know, and I, I mean, technically the board do hire the management. So, you know, there's that reality, but my experience of where that starts to work really well is when you're on the same team, you're pulling in the same direction. So, you know, what good leadership in my view is to support people to the absolute hilt, because as long as people are trying and they are committed, then if they're not succeeding, it's it's because there's there's a there's a gap somewhere which needs to be filled. And if you can have an open and honest conversation about that gap in a non-threatening way, people are really open and they know it too. And it's much better for everybody if you can talk about it, figure out together how you're going to fill it, rather than uh, what often happens is it's not happening. So people just start getting kind of adversarial about it. And that just leads to bad outcomes for everybody. So no, I'm definitely on the side of, I mean, my leadership key, and you know, it's something I've sort of learned the hard way, you know, and look, life isn't a bed of roses and sometimes relationships break down or sometimes people don't, don't play the game. Sometimes I might make a mistake, which leads to things going, going in a, in a bad direction. Um, but broadly, you know, the key for me is respect and trust and just making sure that, that you've got people in a position where they can succeed. Well, I think you boil down to one of the absolute keys of life, you know, just that sense of believing in people. And actually being with them on that journey, yeah. I think so much around leadership can be around performance and metrics and activities mm -hmm. and programs and all of those things are right, but they're there to drive, I believe, a more macro goal, which is empowering people to be to be the best they can be. And you you just described that so well. So thank you, James. Now, if I'm a younger listener and I'm listening to this, I'm thinking I've got a hundred more questions for James. I wish I could ask him this. Wish I could ask him that. But just a final question before I let you go and get on with your day. What would be the one piece of advice that you would give your younger self? I think it would be to stay positive. You know, it's easy to pick holes, to get frustrated. I'm an ambitious person. I'm ambitious for Cook. I'm ambitious for the change that I believe the world needs. And I have a sort of burning passion for actually a different way of doing business. And it can be really easy then to start getting furious about some of the things that you see going on, you know, and they are enraging. The injustices and the abuses of, you know, particularly in my realm, the abuses of big business are heartbreaking and they happen every day. And it's really easy to become enraged and to, to sort of start thinking of oneself as some sort of you know, angel of vengeance. And it's a terrible idea. You know, it's not our job. And, you know, I'm absolutely clear that you know, there is a, there is a judge, there is a reckoning, but we're not that judge and we're not that reckoning. You know, it's not our fight. And our job is to walk the path of love and uh, encouragement and positivity. And what I've learned is the more that you, 
funny enough, I was reading about, you know, I'm a big sports fan and my son's a big sports fan. And we've been, I was reading about, you know, how culture in football is changing and culture in professional high level sports is changing. You know, the kind of hairdryer treatment you used to get in the dressing room is a bit passe. And actually now it's more about positivity and and encouragement. And that's, I'm convinced that's how you get the best out of people. And particularly when you need to change things. And a lot of things need to change now. The way to change things is to bring people with you and to enter into a, a journey together and, and a journey of mutual support and positivity. And you can't do that if you're constantly critical. Now, I would love to end it there, but I'm going to have to ask you one final question. You said you're a huge sports fan. Which particular football team? Uh, Brighton and Hove Albion. We're season ticket holders. Are you? Oh, fantastic. They have a great season as well. We've had an absolute blinder and we're looking forward to European football next year. Isn't that amazing? I know. I know. One of the one of the sort of teams of the season. Brilliant. James, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed listening to the stories and insights from our guests. We would love you to connect and be part of the Wonderful Leaders community. So head over to Wonderful Leaders on Instagram where you'll find links to join the community on Slack. There is so much coming up, so join and subscribe to hear about upcoming events and programs. Until next time, have a great day.